Imagine living in a culture where sexual immorality was so common that even Christians had a hard time discerning what was right and wrong. Well, such was the case in ancient Corinth. And I'm afraid that such is the case in modern America. We're surrounded by sexual temptation everywhere we look, are we not? Adultery within marriage is so commonplace that divorce has become easy and marriage has become disposable. Immorality before marriage in a dating relationship is almost normal. Our culture has accepted perversions of human sexuality like homosexuality. Pornography is easily accessible. And our minds and our eyes and our hearts are constantly bombarded with sensuality from every form of media. And not only that, our culture overemphasizes the body so much that men and women are more self-conscious, more body-conscious than ever. Friends, Christians today have a hard time discerning what's right and what's wrong when it comes to sexuality. Paul wanted to help Christians then in ancient Corinth and today here in our church with this issue, so he addressed it in his letter, the letter of 1 Corinthians. Would you please take your copy of God's Word, look at 1 Corinthians We're at chapter 6 this morning, and in 1 Corinthians chapters 6 and 7, we learn that there are two contrasting views on human sexuality that are held by the Christians within the church at Corinth. Chapter 6, the spiritual people at Corinth, those who are now Christians and consider themselves spiritually mature people, Uh, think that they are free to pursue their sexuality however they want. And in chapter 7, contrasting that, the spiritual people think that they should abstain from all forms of human sexuality because that's base and fleshly. Paul disagrees with both. And he presents a middle ground, a third way, God's design for human sexuality. And so in chapter 6, Paul gives a prohibition on sexual immorality, say no. And then in chapter 7, he gives instructions on sexual morality, say yes. Chapter 7 
talks about human sexuality in marriage, the beauties of God's design. Chapter 7 also talks about singleness, divorce, and widowhood. And that's what we're going to be studying for the next four weeks. Chapter 6 today, and chapter 7 the next three weeks. And yes, it's going to be a delicate conversation. I've already mentioned the word sex more times than you probably wish that I would have, especially those of you who are parents with little ones sitting beside you. So I will do my absolute best to be discreet. But friends, this is God's word and it's next. And it's important for us. And it's important for your kids when they're ready for it. And I'll leave that to you. Our sermon text today is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 through 20. All right? So find your place there, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. And before we read it, I want to give you an overview so that you know, even while we're just reading God's word, what you're looking at, okay? There's a specific problem going on in Corinth that Paul is addressing. He's addressed four different problems now. Christians within the church were engaged in sexual immorality with prostitutes. So Paul's main point in this section of chapter 6 is to, to tell them to stop this sinful, immoral activity. So the whole, the whole of chapter 6, you'll notice, is a prohibition. It's do not and why not. He'll get to the yes of human sexuality in chapter 7. That's next week. But this morning, it's a prohibition against sexual immorality. Look at verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. In verse 20, and glorify God. In your bodies. So, in making his case, I want you to notice something about this particular paragraph. So, you're looking at your Bible page there, verses 12 through 20. I want you to notice that Paul lays out a pretty clear structure. And so, that's going to be this, the structure for my sermon this morning. In verse 12 through 14, he introduces this topic and his main point. He, expro- he explains the problem of human. Uh, uh, sexual immorality in verse 12 through 14. And then in verse 15 through 20, he gives three images. Three images that reveal the true nature of sexual immorality. And he wants these three horrendous images to cause Christians to flee from sexual immorality. So, so look there at the structure. Look at each of these points, these three images start with the same words. Do you not know? He's arguing his case. Don't you know this about sexual immorality and your body? So look there, verse 15, do you not know? That's one. Verse 16, or do you not know? And then verse 18, or do you not know? So he introduces the problem and then he gives three 
supporting points for that problem. That's that's going to be the structure of my sermon as well. In fact, I've given that to you on the note sheet if you would like to uh, follow along. I think it'll be helpful for you, and maybe you can make some notes, write some questions, um, and, and uh, you can do some more research later. I'd be happy to talk with you about your questions. But from the very beginning, I want you to notice something about this text. I want you to notice that the overwhelming reason to say no to sexual immorality is the yes of the gospel of Christ. Paul is not taking something from you. He is giving you something much better, Christian. The overwhelming reason to say no to sin is the yes of the gospel of Christ. So look at how thoroughly saturated Paul's argument is here from 12 through 20. Look at verse 13. We see the lordship of Christ. In verse 14, we see the resurrection of Christ. In verse 15, we see that we are members with Christ. In verse 17, we are in union. We're one spirit with Christ. In verse 19, we see that the sacrifice of Christ that purchased us. And then in verse 19 as well, we see the indwelling Spirit of God. And notice even there at the end that Paul brings the entire Trinity into view in this particular issue. In this section, Paul mentions God the Father five times, the Lord Jesus Christ seven times, and the Holy Spirit one time. I want to emphasize that as as much as I can this morning, that the overwhelming reason to say no to the sin of sexual immorality is the gigantic and overwhelming good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So my prayer is not simply that you won't hire prostitutes. My prayer is that you will flee from sexual immorality in every form because of the gospel, grace, and glory of Jesus Christ. So let's now read our text. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. This is God's word. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ And make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexual, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's God's word. Amen. Well, Paul addresses the problem here in verse 12 through 14. As we can see, Christians in Corinth were engaged in sexual immorality with prostitutes. The specific issue is not just merely sexual immorality, but more specifically, with prostitutes. Look there in verse 13, he talks about sexual immorality. Again, in verse 18, immorality. But then in 15 and 16, he gets specific about prostitution and he who is joined to a prostitute. So how is this possible? How is it possible that Christians are engaged with prostitutes? And doesn't that sound absolutely outrageous? Isn't that something that you might think, well, we don't need that because like nobody here is going to be engaged with a prostitute? Well, as outrageous as it might sound to us, friends, going to a prostitute was not outrageous. It was not scandalous in ancient Corinth. Now, he might be talking about temple prostitution, which is actually a form of worship, but he doesn't say temple prostitutes here. He just talks about prostitution. And so this is any form of immorality for hire. Cicero, a statesman and philosopher, 90 years before this letter was written, so right in around that time, not long before, talked about those who forbid going to prostitutes. He says this, and I quote, Their view is contrary not only to the license of this age, but also to the custom and concessions of our ancestors. For when was this not a common practice? When was it blamed? When was it forbidden? Plutarch, a philosopher in and around Corinth, at the same time as the Apostle Paul, argues this way. Now imagine this, Plutarch. He argues that a wife should not be angry with her husband if she is with, or pardon, if he goes to a maidservant or a prostitute, and here's why, quote, she should reason that it is respect for her which leads him to share his debauchery, licentiousness, and wantonness with some other woman. 
respect for her instead of scandalous and outrageous. This is how common immorality was in ancient Corinth. It was so common that it became a verb. To Corinthianize is to be sexually immoral. And what Paul is saying here is that your church looks more like the culture than it does Christ. Your church has been infected by the spirit of the culture. And Paul addresses immorality a bunch of times in this letter and in the next. For example, before we got here, chapter 6, he already mentioned it twice. Chapter 5, do you remember that infamous account of the, the incestuous man? And the church tolerated them. Paul said, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality uh, among you of a sort that's not even tolerated by the pagans. And then in chapter 6, right before we got here, when Paul listed those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, he said this. He mentioned sexually immoral, adulterers, and two different kinds of homosexuality. Do not let anyone tell you that the Bible does not prohibit sexuality. In one verse, it prohibits it twice. Passive and active homosexuality. And then he follows that list up with verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by his spirit. Praise God. You've been saved from that stuff. Why is it still in the church? So here in chapter 6, he's addressing this issue of going to prostitutes. And then in chapter 7, he gives the, the yes of gospel, I mean, of sexual morality, God's design for it. And then in chapter 10, again, same letter, chapter 10, he says this, we must not indulge in sexual immorality. Folks, this is an issue in Corinth. And it's an issue today, too. I was particularly interested in the next letter. Second Corinthians, he talks about it again. This thing didn't go away. In his next letter, Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 22, listen to this. Paul says, I fear that when I come to you again, I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. It was so pervasive that Paul says, I'm afraid that when I come, you all will not have repented over this stuff. The church was infected with the spirit of the culture. I wonder, friends, how we have been infected with the spirit of our culture. See, the deeper problem than what's going on physically here 
is that the Christians didn't see the problem with immorality. They didn't see it. They didn't get what the big deal was. And they justified their actions by two different theological slogans. And those slogans are helpfully marked off with quotes in most of your Bibles. There are two different theological slogans with which the Corinthian Christians allowed themselves to justify sexual immorality. One in verse 12 is, all things are lawful for me. Do you see that in quotes in most of your Bibles? And then the, the second one is verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, this sex is for the body. The body is for sex. That's, that's what... That's how God made it. So Paul here does not begin by attacking their immoral behavior. He doesn't come off the top rope and just slam them. Rather, he confronts the false theology on which their behavior is based. So look at how Paul in verse 12 and 13 begins with their false theology. He picks up slogan number one. We are free in Christ to do whatever we want. All things are lawful for us. We're spiritual people. We're in Christ now. And we're free to do what we want to do. Well, in a sense, they're right. In fact, Paul taught this, Galatians chapter 5, for freedom. Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. (laughs) Okay. Romans chapter 8, verse 2. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. And so they took this freedom in Christ thing, and they said, we have been freed from the condemnation of the law. We have been freed from the ceremonial law of Moses, things like observing food restrictions, holy days, and sacrifices that are just merely a shadow of Christ. And then they took it one step farther, and they said, we're free to do whatever we want to do. And that's where Paul says, no, you're not. Being free in Christ doesn't mean being free to sin. And so he says in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. In other words, he negates their freedom in Christ by saying that you're governed by only that which is beneficial for you and others. And sexual immorality is not beneficial for you or others. You say, quote, your theological slogan is all things are lawful for me. And, and Paul says, but, but I will not be dominated by anything. In other words, there are some activities that will enslave you. Sexual immorality certainly is one of those activities. And so your freedom in Christ is is governed ultimately by what God says is best for you. Just like you parents make laws and rules for the best intent of your children, so God has done for us. He's not keeping anything 
any good thing from us. He's keeping us from that which is harmful and unhealthy and hurtful and not beneficial and going to dominate us. That's slogan number one. We're free in Christ. No, you're not free to sin. Slogan number two. Slogan number two, food's meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God's going to destroy both, one and the other. Look, sex is for the body, just like food's made for the stomach. That's that's what my body is for. It's natural. This slogan seems to articulate a a dualism between the, the physical and the spiritual. Like everything that's that's spiritual is good, and everything that's Physical, it has no value. It might not be bad, but it certainly doesn't have any eternal value. So what we do with the physical doesn't really matter. We're spiritual people now. They had a a false view of their body that said something like this. We're spiritual people inside of physical, sinful bodies. That's a dualism that's not helpful. You are not inside your body. So often, even we Christians think about the real me is on the inside. This is not me. No, God created us to be embodied souls, embodied spirits. Our body is just as much part of us as is our spirit. So Paul says, you're wrong. Your body is not meant for sexual immorality, but what's your body meant for? For the Lord and the Lord for the body. And the proof of that, verse 14, God raised the Lord and he'll raise us up by his power too. So Paul's main point here in verse 13 and 14 about this slogan Uh, This second slogan is your body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. In other words, the Lordship of Christ has laid claim to you, not just your spirit, but your body too. God has laid claim to you. God values your body, Christian. It's not nothing. It's not throwaway. Your body was created by God. Your body is vital to your humanity and part of the very good design for you as God's image bearer on earth. Your body and spirit has been redeemed through the what? Bodily incarnation, bodily death, and bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And your body will be resurrected one day. Not just your spirit. When we're resurrected... We're restored to the way it was supposed to be. In a body that's meant for eternity rather than a body that has been cursed by sin and death. And God went to great pains and great great price to redeem you, body 
and spirit. And he will raise us up by his power. So I think it would just be good for us to to push pause for a moment. And as we consider this scripture, I think it would be worth asking ourselves, how do we have a false view of our physical bodies? How might we also have bad theology about our bodies? And it might also be helpful for for us to ask ourselves, how do we justify our sin with half-truths in Scripture? The bottom line is this. The Lordship of Jesus Christ lays claim to our bodies. And it's essential that we understand God's view of our bodies. And so notice what Paul does. Look at how many times the word body or member, which is part, body part, is mentioned throughout 12 through 20. Just look how many times the word body or body part comes up. Every single sentence, 12 different times in a very short practice. In other words, what Paul is saying here is when we believe what the gospel says about our bodies, we will see the sinfulness of sexual immorality and flee. And that's very different than the purity culture that I used to preach as a youth pastor. I just told the students to flee sexual immorality, but I never told them why. Oh, oh, I told them all the reasons. In fact, I remember one time preaching a sermon, literally preaching a sermon with 10 reasons that they should abstain from sex. And I was kind of, I thought it was great that I gave nine reasons that were really practical and only one of them had anything to do with God. And do you know what was? Because God said so. I'm not kidding you. I still have the notes from that sermon. I gave 10 reasons to abstain from sexual immorality. Like nine of them were for all the physical, social, emotional, relational kinds of things. And then the last one, I really hit it home with, and oh, here's what we all know. Because God says so. Do you understand how different it is that we abstain because God said so instead of understanding the redemptive plan of God for our bodies and how the gospel of Christ fuels us to say no to sin because of a greater yes? It's huge. When we believe what the gospel says about our bodies, we will see the sinfulness of, of sexual immorality, and we will flee. We will see it, and we will flee. But the key is understanding what God says about our bodies. So Paul gives us three images. Three horrendous images that reveal the true nature of sexual immorality. And why would he have to do that? Because, friends, there's a a reason that it's so common. There's a reason that immorality is so pervasive because it is part of human pleasure and it does not, in the moment, look like a bad thing. 
So Paul presents three horrendous images that reveal the true nature of sexual immorality. And when we see it, when we believe it, then we'll flee from sexual immorality. Image number one, verse 15. Paul says, don't you know that sexual immorality violates Christ's body? Don't you know that sexual immorality violates whose body? Christ's body. Read verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Are you nuts? No, may it never be so. That's absurd. Your bodies are part of Christ's. Shall I then take the body parts of Christ and make them involve them in immoral relationships with a prostitute? Never. See, the gospel brings us into a union with Christ where our body is a member of his body, not just a member of a church, but the union of Christ with his followers is so close, so intimate that our bodies are extensions, members of Christ's body. And when we engage in sexual immorality, we involve Christ's body in our sin. Ray Ortland put it this way. I love Ray Ortland. The gospel claims that our bodies, not just our souls, but our bodies with all their appetites and drives and all their smells and messes, with all their aches and pains and all their sneezing and yawning. Yes, our bodies are united to the living Christ. We are physical extensions of Christ in the modern world. So, For example, our legs are how Jesus walks the streets of our cities today. He so cares for us in all that we are. He so identifies with us. He gets so involved with us that every part of our very bodies, including our sexuality, is eternally joined to him now and brings his incarnational presence into the world we live in. Could our bodies have any greater dignity? The Christian gospel creates strong sexual integrity, not by despising the body, but by honoring the body as God does. So Paul's point. The gospel says that your body is now... Part of Christ's body. So when you see sexual immorality as violating Christ's body, then you'll flee from it. Image number two. Verse 16 through 18. 
Or do you not know that when he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for as, um, I think I read that wrong, let me read it again. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. First of all, I want you to see clearly the structure here. This is important to me as an interpreter because I wanted to make verse 18 just a whole separate point. It seems like Paul kind of rehitches there, says flee sexual immorality, and here's another reason. Because every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but sexually immoral person commits sin against his own body. That seems like a whole different thing. But it's not. In the structure, it's a sub-point. Do you see that? Verse 15, point number one, don't you know? Verse 16, point number two, don't you know? Verse 19, do you not know? Verse 18 is part of the section 16 through 18. And what Paul says here is that there's something unique and self-destructive about sexual sin. The first point was, don't you know what you're involving Christ in? The second point is, don't you know what you're doing to your own self here? The third, by the way, is, don't you see what you're doing to God's temple? Paul says there's something unique and self-destructive about sexual sin. When we commit sexual immorality, we sin against, look there at the end of verse 18, our own body. What does that mean? We understand from this section that it's not just our body, but our whole self, body and spirit. Why do I say that? How is sexual immorality sinning against our whole self, body and spirit? Well, notice, notice the progression of this text. I encourage you to circle these words and then go back and study it later. I won't be able to fully develop this in this sermon. Notice the progression of this text. Verse 16a, one body. Verse 16b, one flesh. Verse 17, one spirit. One body joined to a prostitute. One flesh joined in marriage. One spirit joined with Christ. You see that progression? One body is an immoral sinful union. One flesh is the covenant marriage union. One spirit is the spiritual redemptive union with Christ. Here's what Paul is saying. God designed the physical fusion of a man and woman to create a one flesh union. The man and woman are no longer two. But through this act of sexual intimacy, they become, what's the word? One. They become bound. That's what the word means when it says that they he holds fast. They become one flesh. 
in a covenant union. Genesis chapter 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and be bound to hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Jesus, when he quoted this, didn't stop there. He explained it. Matthew chapter 19, he quoted Genesis 2 and then he said, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And Paul explained that from the very beginning of time, God designed human sexuality to paint a picture of the gospel. The picture not of one man and one woman becoming united this way physically, but Christ and his church becoming one in a spiritual union. Paul explained, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Friends, by becoming one body with a prostitute, you become one flesh with her. And as Christians, you're already one spirit with Christ. That one body, one flesh union is incompatible with your one spiritual union with Jesus Christ. By sinning this way, you not only sin against Christ, but you sin in the deepest possible way against your whole self, body, and spirit. David Garland is the author of one of the commentaries that I use, and I pulled a paragraph from his text that I'd like to read for you. It's good enough to pay attention to. The assumption here is that every sexual act between a man and a woman, whether illicit or not, fuses the partners together into one flesh. There's no such thing as casual sex that has no enduring consequences, even when the partners have no intention of forming a mutual attachment. No prophylactic exists that can protect this unlawful union from extending its defiling tendrils into every part of a person's being. Using a prostitute is not a victimless crime in which no one gets hurt. This sin contaminates and breaches the union with Christ. So Paul says, run, run, flee. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Don't you know what you're doing to your own body and spirit? You not only sin against Christ, but you are doing damage. You're sinning against the deepest part of you in every way, your body and your spirit, which is united in Christ. Don't fight it. Flee from it. In chapter 10, 
in this whole context, speaking of this sin again, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate that because it's true. He says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee. This is not a sin you fight. This is a sin you flee from. Run like Potiphar ran, uh, like Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife. Run, friends. Paul's point here in 16 through 18 is that the gospel says your whole self, body and spirit has become one with Jesus. When we see in, uh, sexual immorality as becoming one with a prostitute or another person immorally, then we'll flee from it. But the Christians then didn't see it that way, and I'm afraid we don't either. We see it as the most natural thing to express love. Paul says it's the most damaging thing to your body and soul in a unique way. Image number three. Horrendous images, in my opinion. Sexual immorality, first of all, violates Christ's body. Secondly, uniquely sins against your whole self. And now thirdly, sexual immorality desecrates God's temple. Why? Because your body is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body is not your own to do with whatever you like. The Lordship of Jesus Christ has laid claim on your body. He's been making that point. Verse 20, you have been purchased by God with the price of the infinitely valuable blood of Jesus Christ. Peter said, you were not ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You've been purchased by the infinitely valuable blood of Christ. And because of that, God sent his spirit to indwell you. Look at verse 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And where did you get that? As a gift from God, as a grace of God? You're indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, friends. You can't join your body to a prostitute, you're desecrating the temple. The dwelling place of God. 
The gospel says your body is now indwelled by the Holy Spirit. When we see sexual immorality as desecrating God's temple, we'll flee from it. But what will we do? Verse 20. What do we do now, Paul? So, take that body of yours and glorify God. So glorify God in your body. But I thought it was only our spirit. No, 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 no. God means for you to live here and glorify him here on this earth physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. God redeemed your whole self. So glorify God in your body. Clearly, the way that we glorify God is by following God's design for human sexuality. That's next week. By glorifying God, we show the value of God. We show the weighty worth of God. How do we do that? We show the worth of God by showing the nothingness, the the futility of other things like what our culture thinks is so valuable. It's become their identification. Who they are to the deepest part of their soul is now identified by their sexuality. We show that God is more desirable and more valuable than sex, not by giving our bodies to it, but by giving our bodies to serve God. That's what Jimmy read for us earlier. You remember Romans chapter 6? Don't present your bodies, your members' hands, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Ah, see, you're just supposed to present yourself to God, but doesn't say anything about your body. Oh, just keep reading. Present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Mind, eyes, hands, legs, every part of you. Present it to God every single day and say, God, today I want to glorify you in my body. How do we do that? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Well, I'm over time, so I need to close. My prayer this morning is not simply that you won't hire prostitutes. My prayer is that you and I will flee from sexual immorality in every form because of the gospel, grace, and glory of Jesus Christ. So in closing, let me just ask this question. How do we do that? How do we do that? By seeing What the gospel says about our bodies, not just our spirits. Because when we see what the gospel says, what God has done through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to redeem us body and spirit, then we will see the sinfulness of what looks so valuable and pleasurable. We'll see the ugliness of it and we will run from it rather than run to it. So may we go deep in the gospel. May we run to the cross of Jesus Christ. 
and see their life instead of death that comes from every form of sexual immorality. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would please take your word and plant it deep in our hearts so that it changes us. I pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything that you have done to redeem us from sin like sexual sin, I pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would so fill our eyes and our hearts and our minds that we would say no to sin and yes to righteousness. May we glorify you with these bodies that you've given us. However we can do that every day until you call us home and change our bodies into an immortal body fit for the kingdom of God, where we will live with you forever. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand with me, please. So, friends, um, I am aware that uh, at various levels, there may be uh, men and women here who struggle with this particular sin. I, wanna, I want to encourage you this morning that um, there's forgiveness for all who repent from the sin of sexual immorality. There's forgiveness for all who will turn away from it and turn to Jesus. Remember what Paul said, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what I'm most profoundly impacted by as I think about this, that the Bible includes stories of prostitutes who were also forgiven by Jesus, like that one Woman of the city, sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, that came and anointed the feet of Jesus, wept as she did because she knew. You know what Jesus said to her? I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Ah. If you've been enslaved, dominated by the sin of sexual immorality, there's forgiveness and grace with the Lord Jesus Christ. I encourage you to run to him this morning. God has given you brothers and sisters here in this church that we can pray for one another. And not just hold each other accountable for our sin, but hold each other accountable so that we can see what God says through the gospel about ourselves. And so that we can grow to where we don't want to sin. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah.
So may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship in dwelling, intimate fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.